Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the show that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago and as a senior editor at Forbes was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full time. Unchained and Unconfirmed are now published as videos. If you're not yet subscribed to the Unchained YouTube channel, Head to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. Download the Crypto.com app today. Need cash but don't want to sell your crypto? Use Nexo's instant crypto credit lines and withdraw funds today. Starting from only 5.9% APR. Create an account at nexo.io. Today's guest is Andreas Antonopoulos, speaker, educator, and author of Mastering Bitcoin, Mastering Ethereum, and The Internet of Money, Volumes 1, 2, and 3. Welcome, Andreas. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Laura. In recent weeks, there's been a controversy on crypto Twitter about what the actual supply of Ether was and whether or not it is independently verifiable. Before we get into the particulars about the total ETH supply, though, can you just explain why this metric is important to some people and to whom it is important? Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'd have to speculate on their state of mind, but I'll, I'll try my best. I think it's important because it's a framing assumption that drives the interest in Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin from the beginning uh, was defined by its fixed uh, and immutable supply of no more, uh, not even up to 21 million coins, and a fixed issuance schedule that is um, set in stone, or rather set on the blockchain, which is even stronger, and will not change. It's, um, it's also one of the key characteristics because Bitcoin is first and foremost money. And uh, in fact, it's money of a particular kind. It's hard money or sound money. And um, that j- drives a lot of its appeal, especially uh, within some groups um, who are interested in it with a very um, specific Austrian economics ideological interest. And so then once this debate had been going on for a few days, you finally wrote up a tweet storm that was really interesting and dug into some of the technicalities that uh, informed this question. And in that tweet storm, you begin it by saying that this debate was a silly gotcha. Why mm-hmm. did you say that? Well, because it reminds me of the kind of questions that reflect um, some very deep-seated framing assumptions um, and an inability to see past those framing assumptions that is so often leveled against Bitcoin. 
by people who don't understand why Bitcoin matters or what it is. And to, to see it being used by people who are very much interested in Bitcoin against Ethereum and to frame that question with some very specific assumptions behind it that don't actually make a lot of sense in the Ethereum context, um, it seemed to me to be not necessarily a good faith question or even a very interesting question to answer. And um, and a lot of the pushback to the answers that had been given to that question um, further reinforced that framing. So uh, that's why I didn't think it was, it was a very useful question. I mean, there's plenty to criticize about Ethereum. There's also plenty to criticize about Bitcoin, if we're being honest. And I just didn't think that that was a particularly valid um, criticism. And then you did explain, for technical reasons, why this question doesn't necessarily make sense for Ethereum or why it is actually difficult to answer. What are some of those reasons? To, just to clarify, because I think this point has been lost, um, Ethereum supply is validated every block, and it's validated according to the consensus rules, and everybody who runs an Ethereum node, um, their node validates the supply. There's no difference in that fundamental mechanic from Bitcoin's fundamental consensus rules w- with regards to validation of supply. The difference is that because of a variety of factors um, that are different in Bitcoin than in Ethereum. In Bitcoin, there is a specific API method. You can ask your node to give you the current sum. Uh, and in Ethereum, it's not so easy to do that. That doesn't mean there is no sum. That doesn't mean that the sum isn't validated or part of the consensus rules. It just seems that it just means that that's not an easily accessible answer. And depending on how you write the script that comes up with the answer and the methodology you use, you might come up with some slightly differing answers. And But some of those, just to lay them out for sure. listeners, are that uh, Ethereum uses an account balance system right. uh, as opposed to the unspent transaction output system of Bitcoin. They have burn addresses. The block times are different. Uh, Ethereum also has this uncle system. Do you want to maybe just pick a few of those to kind of explain a little bit about why that question is somewhat difficult to answer? Sure. Absolutely. Um, The first one is that uh, Bitcoin doesn't use a double-entry bookkeeping account balance system. Instead, it uses a system that's more like um, tracking um, fixed amount coins through the system, and these are called unspent transaction outputs. And at any moment in time, it keeps a database of the current unspent transaction outputs, and so it's, it's very easy to just sum them up. Um, so the, the current state of the unspent transaction output database is easy to access. Ethereum doesn't use um, fixed amount coins, um, indivisible chunks of currency as Bitcoin does. Instead, it uses a system of accounts. These accounts have credits and debits. These credits and debits are reconciled as part of consensus and have to add up. But in order to figure out what the exact balance of any account is or to sum the balance of all the accounts, you have to go back to the Genesis block and then you just have to run through the pluses and minuses until you arrive at an answer. And so that takes more work. It it takes 
even more work because of some historic anomalies in the um, Ethereum blockchain. There's a period where um, validating the state takes a, a significant amount of computation due to a bug that allowed a denial of service attack. That's not neither here nor there. You can't validate it. It just takes more time. And so once you add up all of these numbers, you can get an answer. However, that answer changes every 15 seconds because Bitcoin has 40 blocks in the same time, sorry, Ethereum has 40 blocks in the same time that Bitcoin has one. And then let's also actually just talk for a minute about the uncle system. What Mm -hmm. function does that serve in Ethereum? So um, the... Uncle system is part of a consensus mechanism for the blockchain called greatest uh, greedy heaviest object um, states tree or something like that. I don't remember the exact observed. Acronym. I think observed tree. Thank you. So what what that is um, is a mechanism where unlike Bitcoin, where the winner of the block takes all. In Ethereum, the um, spoils, if you like, are shared by the winner plus uh, the second, third, fourth, fifth place um, answers. So um, this acts a bit like an on-chain pool mechanism, almost like a mining pool on-chain. So in Bitcoin, if you want to um, get a partial reward for participating in the mining of a block, even when you don't win, you use a mining pool. Uh, And that's an off-chain system that coordinates rewards based on the share of effort you put in. Uh, In Ethereum, that's an on-chain system because of this protocol. Why it's done that way, um, whether that's the right way or the wrong way to do it, is really a matter of design philosophy. But that's simply the way it's done for proof of work. And so as this debate raged on, you saw also that people were kind of gloating in the difficulty of pinning down a single number for the ETH supply. What did that say to you that that was their attitude about it? Well, I mean, I think that kind of um, attitude is both unproductive, uh, really, because focusing too much on what what one might think about what other chains should be doing instead of building their own solutions is a bit of a waste of time. Um, I think it's also a bit of a dangerous attitude. And the reason it's a bit of a dangerous attitude is because um, no system is without criticism. No system is without flaws. Uh, No system um, has no bugs. And so if you take a position, which is one of absolute purity and rejecting any, um, alternative perspective on anything, uh, that's dangerous because what that means is that when we do find a bug, um, or when the system doesn't behave as expected, you have no retreat from that position. So I I don't like these absolutist arguments. This is um, immature um, technology that is still evolving. And the same types of arguments that are being leveled against Ethereum are exactly the same types of arguments that outsiders level against Bitcoin. So jumping up on a high horse, um, I think, is, is kind of petty and not really very productive. In a moment, we'll discuss Ethereum 2.0, but first a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. With the latest ups and downs in the world's economy, investors need new ways to grow their wealth. Nexo offers a high-yield interest product with up to 10% APY on your crypto, stablecoins, and fiat. 
You can also borrow cash or stable coins using your crypto as collateral at APRs as low as 5.9%. And there's the Nexo token that gives holders access to various bonuses and a dividend that is scheduled soon. You can find more info about the Nexo token at nexo.io slash token. That's nexo.io slash token. How much in fees are you paying for crypto purchases? Now, Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee when you buy crypto. Apart from crypto purchases, you can also get a great deal on food and grocery shopping with Crypto.com. Get up to 10% back when you pay with their MCO Visa card. No card? Use the Crypto.com app to buy gift cards for up to 20% back. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers until the end of September. Back to my conversation with Andreas Antonopoulos. What's your opinion on Ethereum 2.0 and how staking will change interest in ETH as money? I think Ethereum um, has been migrating towards proof of stake for a very long time. And that's one of the reasons why criticizing this proof of work system doesn't really make sense because, you know, it's just an interim system. Um, I don't know whether proof of stake really makes Ethereum better money. Uh, I still think that some of the design trade-offs required to run a smart contracts platform that make Ether a utility token for the explicit purpose of being used as gas to meter the execution of smart contracts, all of these things involve some pretty fundamental design trade-offs, which, in my mind, don't make Ethereum uh, primarily sound money. Uh, It can have the function of money also, just like gasoline can. Yeah, sure. You primarily use it to put it in your car, but you could build an underground thousand gallon tank and use that to barter in the apocalypse. Um, but, <laughs> you know, the, that we doesn't are in mean the apocalypse, right. or, or it might be. <laughs> and, and some people are, I'm sure, are hoarding gas or beans. Um, that doesn't make those things money, um, even though they have value. So, and again, you know, I have this. I have a similar and opposite impression of Bitcoin, which is that Bitcoin isn't a good platform for smart contracts, and that's a good thing because it was never meant to be, and shouldn't try to be, um, because everything that it does to be sound money um, kind of undermines its ability to be a smart contracts platform, and vice versa. And these compromises serve a purpose. Um, these trade-offs serve a purpose. I've talked about this extensively in a video I call The Lion and the Shark, where I describe um, these types of divergent evolution, where you have a cryptocurrency or blockchain that is an apex predator within its own domain of applications, just like the lion is an apex predator in the savannah, and the shark is an apex predator of the ocean, and kind of comparing them or trying to apply the framing assumptions of one on the other doesn't make sense. Um, so to give you to take that analogy a bit further, criticizing Ethereum for um, its total supply is a bit like the um, denizens of the savannah saying, "Well, shark, you you don't have sharp claws and four paws, so you can't run and catch gazelles." And we all know that catching gazelles is the most important thing in the savannah. Um, you know, sure, it's it's a valid argument if that's what you're trying to do, but that's not what the shark is trying to do. And it doesn't make sense to criticize the shark for not having claws any more than it, it makes sense to criticize the lion for looking really ridiculous when it's trying to swim in the ocean. Um, these are not systems that compete directly against each other, and not because they're weak, but because their strength lies in specialization 
that adapts them for one purpose while simultaneously maladapting them for other purposes. And that's a good thing. We need specialization. Um, so, you know, that's why I think it's, it's all a, a, a silly argument. And you, you can go on forever down that path. Um, but the bottom line is they're not really competing. So you uh, view uh, them as eventually coexisting comfortably? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and they'll be joined by many other species um, that won't have money as their main purpose, but will have still value and use in different applications and contexts. And, and I think there are some real trade-offs here. You can't just pretend they're not there. And that when you make a choice to become really good at one thing, you kind of have to become less good at something else. And, and, uh, and then again, there's all of the competitors that say, we're good at everything. We're the low-fee, um, fast propagation, completely decentralized, cheap, smart contracts platform. Um, usually, they tend to suck at all of those things, right? <laughs> so the jack-of-all-trades doesn't work either. Um, th- that doesn't mean that everything has to be single-purpose only, uh, it just means that there is a benefit to a degree of specialization and adaptation in one direction is necessarily maladaptation in another. This is kind of a two-part question, but obviously over the course of Bitcoin's history, we've seen that there's been competing visions and now they've kind of split off into their own coins mm-hmm. by in terms of Bitcoin as sound money, it does feel like it's steering more in the direction of digital gold instead of as, uh, you know, kind of like a medium of exchange, which is maybe now what Bitcoin Cash uh, was trying to do or originally tried to do. And I just wondered, um, at the same time, we're also seeing that Bitcoin is... uh, kind of in a very interesting position because of these larger macro forces with the pandemic and the quantitative Mm -hmm. easing and even the fact that the halving happened (laughs) at the same time as all that. So I wondered um, how you thought these current events will affect that uh, vision of Bitcoin as money or maybe what has been happening more in, you know, the fact that it's maybe gone in more in the direction of digital gold. Like, do you think we will ever use it more as like currency? Yeah, actually, I, I, I think we will. Um, it is true that the, the compromises required to make something very sound money and very decentralized end up hurting when it comes to the ease of transmitting transactions at low fee. Uh, which is exactly the argument that Bitcoin Cash makes against Bitcoin um, in a very similar way to, to, the, to the cheap argument that, that we heard against Ethereum. Um, but the, we, we can make some adjustments to that compromise. And I think the Lightning Network, which is uh, technology that I'm working, my, writing my next book on, is, is part of that solution. But what the pandemic, what the um, stimulus, what the uh, enormous debt has crystallized for Bitcoin is that um, soundness, um, soundness combines and relies very much on the permissionless nature and the very strong element of decentralization that Bitcoin has to have. Because when the going gets tough, what we're going to see is enormous pushback against Bitcoin. Uh, not only will it be, um, not only will it be, uh, kind of, 
um, maligned as um, the currency of criminals and all of that, the cheap propaganda tricks we've seen before. But um, if we do end up in a situation where the economic crisis deepens, um, I think history tells us that it's going to be blamed um, so those who seek an exit through Bitcoin will be blamed for causing the trouble in the primary economy. We've seen that story play out many times in many countries, right? It's, it's, it's never mismanagement internally. It's always foreign elements and strange people who are making choices that undermine our patriotic destiny, right? Um, for that reason, I think... Uh, being permissionless, being robust, being censorship resistant is much more important than being a uh, cheap transaction currency because when the going gets tough, they just shut down the cheap transaction currency and then you have nothing left. Um, and uh, that is going to validate, I think, the, the model for Bitcoin, which is also why I find this whole argument um, a bit silly. I think some of it goes from uh, comes from some uncertainty or insecurity about Bitcoin. I don't think Bitcoin needs defending by gatekeepers or people who will protect you from being drawn into the scam of Ethereum. Um, I think it stands on its own two legs solidly and doesn't need defenders, gatekeepers, cheerleaders, etc. Um, you explain it, and those who need it get it, and and will absolutely use it. Um, and, and nothing, especially not Ethereum, can challenge it in that way. So, you know, no one hired these gatekeepers. Um, and, and if necessary, you're fired. There you go. See, easy. And I also wanted to ask you about Ethereum, which I also feel is at an interesting stage of development because of what's happening with DeFi. Yeah. At the same time that it's trying to transition to Ethereum 2.0, and while a bunch of competitors are waiting in the wings, how do you see all of that playing out? Well, um, I've said before um, that the Ethereum is the next Ethereum, just like Bitcoin is the next Bitcoin. These competitors in the wings um, face a fundamental innovation dilemma that they can't solve, which is differentiate not enough and you lose to network effect. Differentiate too much and you're no longer solving the same problem and you lose to network effect. Um, the ecological niche that the shark uh, Ethereum has uh, occupied in the ocean of DeFi is occupied, done. Um, it, it would take an enormous misstep uh, to lose that position. And so those waiting in the wings aren't really going to be very successful in my mind any more than all of the other things that we're trying to challenge Bitcoin were. And uh, so it doesn't concern you at all that Ethereum 2.0 looks like it's still quite a ways out from being finalized and fully here? Well, I mean, the, the, the phase zero launched August 1st, uh, sorry, August 4th. The test, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not just a test. I mean, it's, it is running on testnet for now, but it is a, a full uh, implementation of a beacon chain with validators for the fundamental function of proof of stake and the slashing algorithm. Um, and it's going to grow from there. The, 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 to me, that roadmap is very clear, very solid, uh, very well researched. 
and has a very good chance of succeeding exactly as is and an even better chance of succeeding with, with minor modifications as needed. And the thing is, the Ethereum culture encourages exactly that level of experimentation. And part of the reason it encourages that level of experimentation is because it's not held back by trying to be sound money, and because it has the big cousin Bitcoin holding that position for it, which gives it some freedom to experiment much, much more um, flexibly. I think that's a huge advantage. And, and that also means that Ethereum needs more iterations. There will be some big, big front page um, crashes, problems, bugs, vulnerabilities. We just saw one play out yesterday with Yam. These things will continue to happen. And there will be another ICO wave and craze that will find its, its platform in Ethereum because that's the, that's the right platform for ICOs, whether they are very good ideas and very legitimate funding opportunities or outright scams, same platform. So we're going to see all of this repeat very much like we saw in 2017. Um, and the important thing to keep in mind is that with each iteration – um, Ethereum actually benefits from this level of experimentation, and that's one of the things that make it interesting. Okay, yeah. I mean, you're more of a technical person than me, but looking at the high fees and everything, I, I did wonder, oh, demand is already so high. Is this going to happen in time? Uh, yeah, but... Right, I mean, <laughs> and we're, we're going to see um, chains fragment off of Ethereum perhaps again. Now, especially now that Ethereum Classic suffered a 51% attack, people are Two. going to try and use these high fee, the high fee environments to say, um, ETH2 scaling solution isn't ready on time, so here's a better option. Well, you know, learn from Bitcoin Cash. They, they tried that. It didn't work. Um, the network effect and the value embedded in the chain and the development libraries and all of the other things that, that Ethereum has already gained uh, means that people will tolerate higher fees for much longer than you expect. All right. I actually just want to ask you one last quick question because I saw that one of the responses to your tweet, Storm, was that you have a blind spot for what the person called inclusiveness, and they put it in quotes, and uh, that was meant to be a criticism of you. And I, it's something that I've also been criticized for, and I have always found it ironic because this is supposed to be a democratizing technology. So I first wanted to say I appreciate that you do speak up for that, but also wondered why that's something you choose to be vocal about. For, for one thing, because I think this is a historically important technology, and that historically important technology only reaches its fruition if it's broadly adopted. And you can't start um, anything on this scale by automatically excluding big chunks of the population um, and gatekeeping, gatekeeping all kinds of um, moral, um, moralistic rather, um, attitudes that, that have no relevance um, to to what we're trying to do here. So it, it's it's important in my mind to recognize that um, meritocracy is one of those um, kind of illusions that serves to maintain um, a, a hierarchy and maintain uh, unequal access to opportunity and. Um, you can't just sit back and let the market play out when, when, it, when the market itself isn't a level playing field, when um, all of the things are tilted in a certain way. 
since I've benefited from that, you know, I'm on the downstream end of that tilted playing field and everything rolls my way quite comfortably. Um, I, I think it's, it's important to do whatever I can and I encourage others to also to change that. Now, I'm not forcing that on anyone. You don't want to play my game? That's fine. I won't come to your conference, but at the same time, you can invite whoever you want. Um, the, well, right now, I'm not going to any conference anyway, so it doesn't really make a difference. Um, but that's the principle I go by. And, uh, and if you can't respect that, or if that causes you to feel uncomfortable about following me on Twitter, hmm, bye-bye. <laughs> I'm quite comfortable with not giving you all of my free work for free. Um, there are plenty of people who understand what I'm trying to do and I'm much more interesting, interested in, in giving them more power. Sorry if that was a bit harsh, but you know, I feel strongly about these things and, um, very often the backlash I get for being interested in technologies like Ethereum is accompanied by all kinds of other ad hominem attacks that have to do with my political opinions, uh, my opinions on inclusivity, et cetera, et cetera. Let me, let me be very clear about this. Part of the reason people get so upset about this is this. It causes them great cognitive dissonance that they are um, in agreement with many of the things I say and think that they are well-reasoned and well-thought-out arguments. And then they come across an opinion that is in complete opposition to what they believe, yet they sense that it's also well-reasoned. That cognitive dissonance can only be resolved by kicking me to the curb. Well, I'm quite happy to encourage more cognitive dissonance. Um, some people eventually break through that. Yeah, I <laughs> I just have to say I probably agree with you on a lot of those points and I really do appreciate that you stand up for what you believe in and you're willing to take those attacks. So take it from a woman of color in the space. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I, I, I appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on Unconfirmed. It's been so much fun chatting with you. Yeah, I think the the first um, one of the first interviews you did on your your show, I was uh, an invited guest, and it, it's been way too long. So why don't we do this again sometime? I yes, we definitely should. We'll we'll have you on my longer show again. Right. Um, I'll I'll reach out to you to arrange that. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. First headline, MicroStrategy is first public company to buy Bitcoin. It seems the pandemic and other macro forces are prompting investors to take a closer look at Bitcoin. For the first time, a publicly traded company has bought Bitcoin as part of its investment strategy. MicroStrategy announced on Tuesday that it purchased 21,000 Bitcoins at an aggregate of $250 million. MicroStrategy CEO Michael J. Saylor said, quote, Our investment in Bitcoin is part of our new capital allocation strategy, which seeks to maximize long-term value for our shareholders. This investment reflects our belief that Bitcoin, as the world's most widely adopted cryptocurrency, is a dependable store of value and an attractive investment asset with more long-term appreciation potential than holding cash. Meanwhile, the correlation rate between Bitcoin and gold has reached 70% for the first time, 
which suggests that at least some do agree with Saylor's view of Bitcoin as a dependable store of value. Next headline, the rise and fall of YAM. YAM, a yield farming token launched on Tuesday, generated tons of community enthusiasm and criticism. At one point, it had $500 million locked in it and then collapsed within a few days. Described as an experiment in fair farming and elasticity, YAM came together in 10 days and combined the features of projects including Compound, Ampleforth, and YFI. Despite being completely unaudited, the YAM token rose from zero to $138 within 20 hours of launch, leading Shapeshift CEO Eric Voorhees to label it a scam or at least, quote, fairly transparent pump and dump nonsense. After rising to a market cap of $60 million in two days, the YAM team first found a bug that they thought could be fixed if enough votes, 1.6 million YAM, were delegated for a fix to be submitted before the next rebase, which was to happen the following morning. At first, it looks like it would succeed because enough whales had planned to chip in to reach quorum. However, once the votes were submitted, the team figured out that the bug also affected the governance module, so the proposal could not succeed. At that point, the market cap collapsed to zero within 35 minutes, and approximately $750,000 worth of funds was lost. With YAM founders tweeting apologies and replies condemning their irresponsibility, YAM has said in a blog post that it is planning to launch a new version of the protocol. Hopefully the team will heed the words of Lefteris Karapetsis, a central figure from the days of the DAO, who wrote an amazing blog post I urge you all to read that chronicled every step of the YAM fiasco and why this whole thing could have been avoided. As he puts it, quote, the minimum precaution that should have been taken is write contract tests, have some sort of security audit of the code. If you claim it's an experiment, then treat it as such by putting deposits, deposit limits in the code to protect your users, putting an escape hatch in the code to protect your users. All of this is worth a read for his explanation of also why this was a Ponzi game in which, as he puts it, quote, the first farmers were incentivized to pump and shill yam via social media so they could find victims onto whom to dump their tokens after the rebase. Next headline, Ethereum transactions, transaction fees reach all-time high. Ethereum gas fees reached an all-time high of $6.9 million on Wednesday, beating 2017's previous high of $4.6 million. Bitcoin transaction fees have remained low in comparison, reaching only $1.4 million in total on the same day. The numbers reflect a high demand for Ethereum and a willingness to pay for that high demand, but pose questions about entry points for other layer ones if Ethereum 2.0 continues to roll out slowly. Next line. Coinbase plans to offer loans to crypto investors, plus resigns from the blockchain association. Coinbase is branching out from its conservative roots. Starting this fall, the exchange is planning to offer cash loans with 8% interest for Bitcoin-backed loans and credit lines capped at $20,000. 
Coinbase's sales pitch directly appeals to consumers who don't like paying taxes on what is usually their considerable crypto gains. On Wednesday afternoon, a waitlist opened on Coinbase with the tagline, Have you ever needed cash for something urgent like a car or home repair? In the past, you might have sold Bitcoin to cover it and incurred a taxable gain or loss. Now you don't have to. Although Coinbase plans to only offer Bitcoin collateralized loans initially, they do have plans to expand into other crypto assets and are pursuing licenses in other states beyond the initial 17 in which they will launch. In other Coinbase news, the company resigned from the cryptocurrency and blockchain advocacy group, the Blockchain Association. In a statement issued by Coinbase, the company said that its decision to resign was based on the association's actions in recent weeks. Industry watchers say that the catalyst was the admittance of rival Binance.us to the association, which is a subsidiary of Binance, the global exchange known for playing fast and loose with regulation. Binance US launched only 11 months ago, but already has around 40 crypto to USD trading pairs, while in contrast, Coinbase, which has a reputation of being more cautious with regulators, has about half of that. Next headline. JP Morgan leading consensus fund raising with $20 million investment. The blog is citing unnamed sources to report that JP Morgan plans to invest $20 million toward Ethereum infrastructure firm consensus, which has been trying for months to raise money. The plan is part of a $50 million convertible debt deal with other investors. As part of the deal, consensus would also take over the maintenance and support of JP Morgan Chase's quorum assets. Consensus has previously been involved in several high-profile enterprise implementations that use Quorum. Next, we have our hacks, attacks, and crimes roundup. Another 51% on Ethereum Classic. Coming five days after the August 1st attack, Ethereum Classic suffered yet another assault, which took $1.7 million from the network, adding further scrutiny to the question of whether or not the blockchain possesses the ability to protect itself from meaningful exploits. Next in the roundup, Open publishes postmortem on the ETH put exploit. The Open team released a detailed analysis in response to the exploit. However, the fact of the matter is they cannot turn the protocol off. And so once the exploit was discovered, all they could do was minimize further damage. Next, how North Korean hackers laundered millions from Upbit. This deep dive into the methods used in 2019 that led to $283 million worth of cryptocurrencies being stolen from the South Korean crypto exchange Upbit shows that hackers moved over, moved the funds over 10 hops or often created multiple intermediate wallets before sending the funds to an exchange. And at last in this roundup, the Department of Justice seizes millions in Bitcoin from Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Hamas. The DOJ says that it seized Bitcoin from 155 addresses allegedly used by Al-Qaeda, having obtained the money through Telegram channels. Al-Qaeda having obtained the money through Telegram channels. Fortune gives the details on how federal agents tricked Hamas into sending Bitcoin straight to the U.S. government. Next headline. Fred Ursum on crypto native insurance. With all the hacks and exploits in DeFi, insurance is on the minds of many in the space. Fred Ursum of Paradigm Capital wrote a comprehensive post about crypto native insurance and the design challenges it poses, including the especially tricky question of whether or not 
payouts should be manual or programmatic. While entirely programmatic systems do sound ideal, as Ethereum creator Vitalik Buterin pointed out, if an insurance system is programmed to make a payout when X event happens, then token teams presumably would know that they should build into their protocols a way to prevent X from happening. So (laughs) this kind of leads the insurance to seem moot if it's already accounted for by the token teams. All right, fun bits. Vitalik scraps Ethereum 2.0 to audit supply of Ethereum. For those of you who were following the ETH supply date that Andreas and I discussed earlier, Coin Jazeera weighed in with a story reporting that Vitalik will be abandoning Ethereum 2.0 to find the true supply of Ethereum. And the story asks whether the fact that the supply is an unknown is due to Ethereum's infamous LSD-themed sex parties. All right, thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Andreas and the ETH supply debate, be sure to check out the links in the show notes. Don't forget, you can now find video recordings of the show on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.